you're listening to the Nonprofit Buildup Podcast, and I'm your host, Nick Campbell. I want to support movements that can interrupt cycles of injustice and inequity and shift power towards vulnerable and marginalized communities. I've spent years working in and with nonprofits and philanthropies, and I know how important infrastructure is to outcomes. On this show, we'll talk about how to build capacity to transform the way you and your organization work. Hi, everyone. It's Steph, BuildUp's Executive Portfolio Liaison. This week on the Nonprofit BuildUp, we're bringing you part one of a two-part informative session led by BuildUp CEO and Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors, RPA General Counsel, A. Nicole Campbell, and moderated by RPA Senior Vice President and Corporate Secretary, Renee Caraby-White. This presentation was originally recorded as a webinar in February 2022. It is the first part of a two-part series. TCLF serves as outsourced general counsel to brave nonprofits and philanthropies, and RPA is one of our brave clients. RPA is a nonprofit organization that currently advises on and manages more than $400 million in annual giving by individuals, families, corporations, and foundations, whose mission is to help donors create thoughtful, effective philanthropy throughout the world. In this episode, Nick provides guidance on value-based contracts, addresses common concerns, discusses how to build trust throughout the contracting process, and explores the potential risks of using standard templates without customization. You won't want to miss it. And with that, here is part one of values-based contracting for grant makers, ensuring alignment, preserving the partnership, and protecting ownership. Hi, everyone. I... I'm really looking forward to this conversation because we're talking about values-based contracting. And I don't think that kind of conversation happens frequently. I think because grant makers, we spend a lot of time thinking about our values, talking about our mission, our vision, and making sure that it's clear internally and externally. And then separately, we have conversations about our legal agreements. Are they protecting the organization? Are they really representative of the kind of risk management approach that we want the organization to have? But it's very rare that you have those conversations happening at the same time, in the same room with the same group of people. And so that's what's going to happen here. We're talking legal agreements and the fundamentals within them, but we're also talking about values within our organizations and how do those values show up in our contracts. So just to get us started, we're we're using that term contract. What do we really mean? And when we say contract, it's really an agreement between two or more persons to do something. That's it. That's a contract. And you'll note that we didn't say a written agreement. We didn't say a verbal agreement. It can be either. You can have an agreement between two or more people, two or more organizations to do something. And you probably have heard of verbal contracts. If you watch any of the court shows, they're usually in court because, you know, they say, look, we had a verbal agreement. We had a verbal contract to do this thing. So there are some states within the United States that do not allow verbal contracts to be enforced over a certain dollar amount. So there's some limitations when you agree verbally to do something, you don't then reduce it to writing. So our position is if it's important enough to agree to it verbally and you are agreeing to do something with someone else or with other persons, and we'll talk about what persons mean in this context, then it's important enough to put in writing. So this entire conversation today, we'll be talking about written 
contracts, written agreements. And we use the word persons as opposed to people because you can enter into a contract between an individual and an organization or two organizations. So we use the term persons to encompass all of that. So that's what we mean when we say contract. What you might be thinking of when you hear that term, if you're a grant maker and you're in a grant making organization, is a service agreement. So consulting agreements, vendor agreements, you might be thinking only of service agreements. That's just one type of contract. There's also grant agreements. So all of the awards that you're making to organizations or to individuals for their grant work will be covered with a grant agreement. And if you make changes to either of these you'll be doing what we call an amendment. And again, remember with amendments, they could be in writing or they can be verbal. Again, we're talking about an agreement. And so we'll really emphasize that we want amendments to be in writing. It's very important that they are in writing because you are changing the terms of a written agreement, right, in this case. So these are the the types of contracts that we will be focused on today. And we know that there are many others, right? But we're just giving the examples of agreements that come up in the context of the work that we're doing. So I think we have a poll that we'd like people to take now in terms of what kinds of agreements they are most concerned with. So take a minute to answer those questions. You can choose multiple ones if you like. And Nick, while people are answering that question, what are the most common types of contracts you see grantmakers enter into outside of the grantee agreements, which of course they all do? Definitely a lot of consulting agreements. We see a lot of those. And we also see a lot of vendor agreements. So if you're not engaging someone to provide a particular service for you in the consulting context, you might be engaging you know, an IT provider, for example, or a communications provider. And so you might do those through vendor agreements. So we see a lot of those. And then you mentioned that it is your preference that all agreements be in writing, particularly amendments. What kinds of agreements don't rise to the work needed in order to have a true contract, if any, in your view? So I would say that if you don't care about the outcome, then the person does it great. And if they don't, oh, well, then that's the kind of agreement that you would want to leave as a verbal agreement. So I do think that you should put all agreements in writing and the writing doesn't have to be like the kinds of templates that we're talking about today. It could be an email, for example, where you just have an agreement in writing and it's clear who's supposed to be doing what. Looks like we have the results from the poll. So 81%. (laughs) are most concerned with grant agreements and then strategic partnership agreements, Mm -hmm. which can be a lot of different things, really. They can be collaboration. They can be true partnership of equals. They can be partnership of pretend equals where one party doesn't realize the power that they have over another party. So is that in line with what you see in your practice? No, definitely. So I see a lot of grant agreements, definitely consulting agreements, as I mentioned. And I've been seeing more recently an increased number of partnership agreements. So we see MOUs coming into play a lot more. We also see just like how parties being very interested in stating how exactly they will work with each other and being very deliberate about that. So this is all resonating with me and the work that we do. So while we're talking about partnership, I know that one of the things that we really wanted to talk about today was how contracts can help build relationships. 
we talked about these conversations that are happening in different rooms, right? You're having these conversations about values of the organization. In another room, you're talking about legal agreements and risk management. And our position is really that contracts are not just a legal document that comes out of nowhere after you have done the relationship building. Contracts are, in fact, relationship builders. The way that you want to show up with your partners, with your grantees, you will be having those conversations. I find that a lot of organizations spend a lot of time talking in the beginning of the relationship about this is how we work, these are our values, this is how we want to show up, this is how we want to partner. And then when we get to the legal agreement, it's a legal document that comes out of nowhere. It's full of legalese. Many parties don't understand it and they just see it as, oh, we just have to get that done. In fact, If we shift our mindset and think about contracts as actually part of that relationship and part of that relationship building, I think that that's the real key to this entire conversation. So if there's anything that you walk away with today is as to shift that mindset to see contracts as key relationship builders. Why? They help to build trust, to keep that trust going. Whatever you've been saying up until that point, you're the partner, the grantee should be able to see those same commitments, expectations sitting in writing before them, right? So it should be another way to say, you can trust us and we can trust you to do exactly what we said we were going to do. Expectations, we're managing, we're setting expectations within this document. And so it's another way to say, this is how our relationship will work. Here's what I expect of you. Here's what you can expect of me. And you can negotiate what those expectations are. And then finally, care. This is not a word that you normally associate with contracts, but this is the way that you will care for the work that's being done and care for each other within that relationship, right? So just taking a step back and saying, what is this contract doing? Is it contributing to this relationship building or is it helping to sort of dissolve the relationship or weaken the relationship that I've started to build? And that's how we want to make sure that contracts are being seen and used within your organization. Great. So we had a question about one of the comments that you made about if you don't care about the outcome, then don't do a contract. But there are scenarios where you do care about the outcome, but you may not want to bother to do a contract agreement because there's no recourse if the terms aren't abided by. Why should someone do an MOU or some kind of contract agreement if there's no recourse? There are a couple of reasons to do a contract. So Part of it is the legal piece, which is something goes wrong, or if there's a breach, then you can follow up, you can take it to court, you can try to resolve what's happening legally. The other piece is just to say, this is how we will work together. Here's my understanding of our relationship. The other party can say, here's our understanding of the relationship. And it's at least very clear there, this is what we're expecting of each other. And so I think apart from the legal implications of whether or not you'd be able to enforce something, it's about how will you work together? Do you know what's expected of you? Can you actually show up and be a good partner? And so all of those things matter. If it matters enough to have the conversation about it, it should matter enough to, again, put it in writing. And it doesn't have to be an elaborate writing. When people hear contract, I think they think, my goodness, this is going to be 10 pages long. It's going to be full of legalese and I just can't do it. A contract can be an email between two parties where one person says, I think this is how we should be working together. This is my agreement. The other person says, yes, this works. Or I want to also add this piece and both parties confirm via email. 
that's a contract, right? So just know that there are a spectrum of how contracts can show up. And we'll talk about what contract templates can and should do and how you should be looking at those templates. But my position is that it's important enough for you to agree to it verbally and you do care about the outcome and the way you're working with the other person, put it in writing and make it a written agreement. So it helps that hold the rigor of going through the writing process and the documentation process. It sounds like it helps to really clarify the relationship and expectations and perhaps even uncover some underlying assumptions that people don't even know that they're making. Mm-hmm. And so I guess hopefully that answered the person's question about it doesn't have to be a formal contract with all of the provisions we're going to talk about today, but an email might suffice for that. That's right. Agreement. You want the fundamentals to at least be in writing. And we'll talk about what those are too. So we mentioned contract templates and what should your contract template address, right? Contracts do a couple things. They focus on the current state. So what is who you are right now, what's happening at the time of signing. And these are called representations. So you might hear lawyers or whoever's working on the contract say, what are the reps, the representations within the contract? Meaning what are they stating as of today, as of today being the date of signing? So your contract template should really lay out very clearly each party being able to state their current state. Future state, what will happen tomorrow within the grant term, if we're talking about a grant agreement or within the service agreement term, if we're talking about a service agreement or a contract, what will happen in the go forward? Those are warranties. What are you saying or warranting that you will do or will not do in the future? So it really is covering what is and then what will be. And that's what your contract templates really should be setting out to do. And we'll talk about good templates and not so good templates, but that's essentially what your template should be trying to cover. Yeah. So there's a question right now that we can put it on hold for later if you want, but I'll just read how they wrote it. This is a timely conversation where a funder who provides a lot of general operating support to our grantees also seek to provide targeted capacity building support through consultants that we have identified, many of which are for profit. So we're trying to figure out the best way to structure those agreements. Do we give the grantee additional restricted funds to work with the consultant we identified? Do we contract directly with the consultant to provide services to the nonprofit? What are the things to think about in that kind of scenario? And again, just want to make it clear, this isn't specific legal advice. It's just a scenario. No, it's a really good question. And it comes up a lot because you then think about the parties to the contract, right? So if we take the situation where you are essentially engaging the consultant on behalf of the grantee, the contract is with you, right? And so there are some considerations there where you would say, okay, well, is it actually the foundation, for example, the grant maker's project? And that's why they're engaging the consultant directly, which would make sense. But in this case, it's like, well, it could be because we have this capacity building project. And as part of that, we're helping out organizations that need capacity building support. So I've definitely seen it done that way, where when you think about the values, you don't necessarily want to interject yourself into that relationship in that way. Often, what you want instead is just to say, look, we want to fund this the easiest way possible. And so you entered into the contract with the consultant. What you can also do is make sure that you build into that agreement who should be notified, who should also receive reports, who should also be included in the conversation when you are contracting that consultant. That would be the grantee organization as well. 
So there's that way to do it, but there's also just, this is your decision. You can go out and find the consultant. Um, we obviously will serve as a resource, we'll help you, but this is your grant and that's for capacity building. And then the grantee can come back to you and say, hey, do you have any recommendations? They can go to their partners and colleagues and say, do you have recommendations? But that contract will then clearly be between the grantee and the consultant. And that is a very clean relationship where the grantee is engaging the consultant directly. Maybe they will then let you know that this has happened because you've awarded grant funds for capacity building. So they should report back and say, hey, we've made this kind of progress. Here's what's happening. And so the second type of engagement is a lot cleaner. And sometimes it can just be about efficiency and administrative approach when you're trying to do the former. But if you really want the grantee to have full control over who they're selecting, why they're selecting them, and really be the partner in that contractual relationship with the consultant, then giving the grant to the grantee can make sense. But I also know there's a lot of things that go on internally, internal policies as well, that might impact you having to do the first one. And then you're going to move on to the representations and warranties. Yes. So again, that's what a contract template does, current state, future state. When we're talking about, we talked about these two rooms, right? The values room, so to speak, and the legal agreement room. We have to get into just specifics of contracts. What is a contract, the bare necessities, and some of the considerations that come up in that space in order to see how we can then infuse the values into that contract. We have to talk through what we consider the bare necessities, like these fundamentals, who, what, where, when, and how much. And again, these are parts of the contract where I think a lot of us are comfortable saying, oh, we definitely know that part. These are the things that change usually with each engagement that you have. But I want us to think about how we can make sure that our values are showing up even within these very basic provisions, right? Where we just sort of take them for granted and say, yep, we know this and we move on, enter the information and move on. But I think it's an opportunity for us to think about how can we make sure that our values are showing up in that space as well. We pulled out IP or intellectual property because again, it's so key. We're talking about ownership. We're talking about use of the work product, the things that are coming out of this funding, who gets to use what and when. This is really where this power dynamic that we talk about within the sector usually comes to play. And it also is very analogous to the same sort of power dynamic you would see in many other sectors or industries where you have someone paying for the service in the context of a service agreement, and you have somebody who's funding a grant award being seen as the person who has more of that, quote, power in that dynamic, right? And so it then lessens the ability of the other party to really fully negotiate on their own behalf. So just being cognizant of of that kind of dynamic and how you are contributing to it or how you are stepping away from it as we talk about contracting really does come up when we're considering IP provisions. And then the last thing we wanted to pull out was standard provisions or what people call boilerplate language, right, within the agreements, which are the indemnification clauses, the confidentiality clauses, how we're going to resolve disputes. These are the kinds of provisions that show up in pretty much every service agreement and sometimes in grant agreements, um, depending on the type of grant. But those are the provisions probably that 
the question around, we care about the outcome, but there's no real recourse if something doesn't happen. Presumably those, particularly indemnification and dispute resolution might not be addressed. Confidentiality probably would be, but the other ones would not. Right. If you're saying like, we don't have a written agreement, we've just agreed to this verbally, why should they keep it confidential? Because you verbally agreed to it? Why should they, if something happens with indemnification, we'll talk about what that is and why you should really pay attention to it. Why should they then say, well, we'll pay that claim on your behalf? So all of those kinds of questions, I think you're exactly right, that these things don't show up because you haven't protected yourself or your organization from these kinds of situations happening. And we talk a lot about how we're showing up as uh, values-based organizations and in contracting, but you also have to remember that you are a steward of charitable assets when you're sitting within your organization. So you have a duty, a responsibility to make sure that you are spending these charitable assets appropriately and that you're protecting them in a good way. And that means that when you're entering into agreements, you have agreements that are tailored to the actual situation, right? It's a risk management and a risk analysis that's happening each and every time. So if we're talking about, for example, strategic partnerships where people might not be able to foresee any situation where there would be indemnification required or a formal dispute resolution process, there's no money involved. It's just an agreement about what they're planning on doing. And let's say they do have an email agreement. It's not a formal contract with parties and all of that. What would you say to them in terms of the need to have an indemnification provision? Like, is that necessary in that kind of agreement where there is no money at risk? The most that might be at risk is perhaps client lists or contact lists or something along those lines. It depends. It could be that you have an indemnification provision within the partnership agreement, but it's not as extensive as an indemnification provision where you have lots of IP at play. There is a ton of operational risk. You're going out there, there might be data privacy issues. So definitely you want to tailor it to the situation, but I wouldn't go in there and say, well, we're not exchanging money. But if, for example, you know, we mentioned client lists, like if that somehow gets disclosed, and there's any sort of negative consequence from that disclosure, or it somehow rises to the level where someone says, I'm going to sue you because you disclosed this information, but it actually wasn't you. It was someone acting as part of that partnership. You want to make sure you understand who is indemnifying? Who is that in that case? Is there indemnification at all? Are you limited in terms of indemnification up to what amount? do you have to indemnify someone for, right? So I think even though money is not exchanged, there might be reports that are being produced. Who owns those reports? How can they be used? So lots of different scenarios can come up. And I don't think it hurts to have, when we say confidentiality provisions, again, this is back to the tailoring, you could have a couple of sentences, right? That really get to what you mean when you talk about confidential information and how you want each party to receive it, store it, and manage it. And that concludes part one of the series. Next week, Nick will continue the conversation about value-based contracting and equity. Additionally, if you're interested in partnering with a law firm that leverages a global network of experienced attorneys with decades of legal training and practical experience and focuses on social impact organizations to serve as an outsourced general counsel and thought partner, then schedule a discovery call with the Campbell Law Firm today. 
The Campbell Law Firm works with brave nonprofits, philanthropies, philanthropists, ultra-high net worth individuals, and movements, offering high-touch counsel to social impact entrepreneurs and organizations around the world. We would love to hear more about your brave mission to change the world. Thank you for listening to this episode of Nonprofit Buildup. To access the show notes, additional resources, and information on how you can work with us, please visit our website at buildupadvisory.com. We invite you to listen again next week as we share another episode about scaling impact by building infrastructure and capacity in the nonprofit sector. Keep building bravely.